Well, I'm thankful for the opportunity to, to preach again. Um, and I've, uh, I've begun counseling in, in more ways than just at the ranch. And as I have done that, I have learned um, that we, we all struggle with a theology of suffering. Um, every single one of us. There's not any of us that doesn't. And as I was, was, have been burdened by that and thinking through that, I, I found comfort in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. And before we, we read that again, I want to kind of introduce the sermon with this. My dad was a, a firefighter in Bartlett for over 30 years. And one thing I learned uh, after his passing was just how much the firefighters wanted to tell us that my dad was a great trainer or a great leader, one that, that was willing to, uh, he, he desperately wanted to teach other people to trade. And it was excited about training up other firefighters. And there's this one, one test, one trial that they go through that I honestly can say is probably, it has always been on my mind, and is probably the one reason why I never followed in my father's footsteps. I did not tell him that. Um, there was this thing, and I don't know what it was called. I just call it the fire trailer, fire maze, whatever you want to call it. And it was like this big trailer that had a little door, and they had to crawl in with all of their uh, turnout gear on, and it was pitch black inside. And they had to crawl in with all that on, and then twist and turn and go up and down and, and get through this maze, not being able to see anything. And I could not do that. <laughs> There's no way. And I was told recently about a, uh, somebody that I know, and I didn't realize this person knew my dad. When he was a volunteer firefighter, my dad, uh, this guy was going through this maze or, or a, about to attempt it and had to tap out, like, get me out of here. He came back out and he tried again. And my dad helped him, which is pretty cool, like a good story for me. That's a good reminder of, of my dad. And my dad told him something that is very impactful to me. He told him, when you go inside, close your eyes. Just close your eyes and do it all with your eyes closed the whole time. Because there's a strange thing that happens when you're in complete darkness and you open your eyes. Your brain tries to figure out what's going on. It tries to make sense of what it cannot make sense of. It sees, but all it sees is black. So it can't tell you whether you're up, you're down, you're left, or you're right. It can't see, so it, it works in overdrive trying to figure it out. If you close your eyes, your brain doesn't fight that because it's like, oh, well, that's what it's supposed to do anyway when you close your eyes. So then what you remember from the light is true in the dark. So when your eyes are closed, you're not confused. You're not discombobulated. You know your left from your right. You know up from down. And you can make it through the maze just by knowing what you know in the light to be true in the dark. And as, as, I, as I thought about that, it was like a perfect illustration of suffering. Suffering is like that darkness. It's the darkness that is so deep and so dark that you can't tell left from right. You don't know up from down. It's, it's so discombobulating that it feels like everything's just pressured on you. And today, this isn't just a, a, a passage of suffering, but it's a passage of suffering and persecution. And you and I may not be experiencing you know, suffering of persecution at the moment. And you may. You might be. 
But Peter is writing to help you prepare for that darkness before it comes. And he's, he's trying to give you a correct understanding so that what you know to be true right now is true later on in the midst of that darkness when you can't make sense of the dark. And there's other people in here that might be in the midst of that. And you might say, yeah, I'm, I'm facing trials on every side. I'm, I'm facing it wherever I go. Um, and Peter is calling you to hold, tr- hold fast to the truth. He's calling you to close your eyes and know what's up and down. And so as, as, we, as we think about that, and we think of that, that fire maze, the fires of suffering are like that maze, that chaotic, discombobulating, anxious, fearful maze. And Peter, through the Holy Spirit, wishes to set our foot upon the solid rock so that when the waves come, beating and rolling in one after another, we can learn to say with Spurgeon, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Now, Peter's not writing in some vacuum. He's not writing as one that's not understanding what he's talking about. Peter had his share of suffering. He's all throughout the New Testament. You, you see him come up all the time. And there's one, one story, actually there's two, where Jesus tells Peter something that I would not want him to ever tell me. He says, Peter, Satan, actually he calls him Simon. Peter, or Simon, <laughs> Satan has asked to sift you. He has requested to sift you. And it was at that moment that then Christ tells Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And it's true. In the midst of the, the trial of Christ, Peter denies knowing Christ, being in fellowship with Christ three times. And then immediately the rooster crowed. And he wrote, Peter wrote one of the pinnacle letters of the New Testament which focuses upon our standing upon Christ in the midst of persecution. He knew what it was like to be sifted. He knew what it was like to fall in fear and cowardness. He knew what it was like to fail. But he also knew what it was like to stand firm and, and be bold upon the Word of God. And he learned to stand in the midst of persecution and continue to entrust himself to his Lord and Savior. Jesus prophesied also to Peter that he would face a martyr's death. And he told him that he would one day be taken where he did not want to go, and he would be forced to do things he would not want to do. And truly, at the end of his life, he was forced to watch his wife be crucified. And then, after that happened, it came his time, and he requested from his uh, captors to be crucified upside down so that he would not die the same death that his Lord died. And so Peter was not not, uh, absent of suffering. He was right in the middle of it. And today we're we're here in in 1 Peter chapter 4. And I want us to see four assurances in the midst of persecution. Four assurances in the midst of persecution. The first assurance is the assurance of identity. Peter's whole letter, let me read this, 12 and 13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Peter's whole letter up until now has been about suffering, to prepare his readers for what's coming, 
to prepare them for the darkness that's on the horizon. And he even starts in chapter 1. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He wants to to teach them and, and help them to have a correct view of suffering, a correct theology of suffering. He tells them, don't be surprised when it comes upon you. Don't, don't think that this is something strange. Those words, strange and surprised, actually are, are, come from the same root word, even the same root word where we get the word hospitality from. And so think about this. Think about you're, you're at home and somebody knocks on your door and you're like, okay, and you go away and answer the door. You're not prepared for guests, yet here they are. And this isn't uh, a friend, because that would be easier. This is a complete stranger, somebody you've never met in your life. And it may even be a foreigner, somebody that doesn't even speak the same language as well as you. And then they're here expecting you to be hospitable. That's what he's talking about. He's like, that's how we treat suffering. We act as if it's the strangest thing that has happened this week. It's the strangest thing that's happened all year. But he's telling them, don't be surprised. Peter does not want them to see trials this way. He says they should be expected, even planned for. If they are living the way that God has called them to live, then the trials ahead are certain. Not strange, not foreign, but expected. Now, it's, it's, it's not easy for us to hear from Peter that a fiery trial should not be thought of as something strange. I mean, people aren't being tied to stakes and burned in our culture right now. Maybe metaphorically, but not physically. And so we think that, oh, that's a strange thing. But he, he is wishing them to see that there are fiery trials that are coming. Listen to John MacArthur's introduction to 1 Peter. He says, As Peter penned this epistle, the dark clouds of the first great outbreak of official persecution instigated by the insane Emperor Nero, were already gathering on the horizon, seeking scapegoats to divert the public suspicion that he had started the great fire of July A.D. 64 that devastated Rome. Nero pinned the blame on the Christians, whom he had already perceived as enemies of Rome because they would worship none but Christ. As a result, they were encased in wax and burned at the stake to light his gardens. They were crucified and thrown to wild beasts. Though the official persecution apparently was confined to the vicinity of Rome, attacks on Christians undoubtedly spread unchecked by the authorities to the other parts of the empire. And it was as a result of Nero's persecution that both Peter and Paul were martyred. But before he died, Peter wrote this magnificent epistle to believers whose suffering would soon intensify. He knew what was coming. He knew who Nero was, and he knew the, the hatred and animosity he had for Christians because they would not worship him. And he knew that that persecution wasn't going to stay in Rome. It was going to bleed out into the, the other areas where he was writing this letter. He said, it's coming. And so he's, he tells them, do not be surprised at the suffering you experience because you are a Christian. There is assurance in suffering that we suffer for our, our identity as a Christian. And so trials are not always literally fiery, but, but they are fiery in their process of purifying. It is, a, it is a, a burning inside of us, even. Peter alludes to 
Proverbs 27:21, which speaks of the crucible. And that, you've, you've, you've probably read it before or if you've heard it before, as they t- took like uh, gold ore and they would stick it in this big, big pot and they would shove it in this crucible and it was super, super hot and it would melt down this rock down to liquid form and the impurities would rise up and they'd pull it out and they'd scrape it off. And then they'd shove it back in there and melt it down again and more impurities would come up and they'd scrape it off. And they'd do it again and again and again until it was almost pure gold. And Peter is telling us, this is what God does in us in suffering. We may go through that crucible over and over and over again. And as we get squeezed and the impurities come to the top, He scrapes them off. And He helps us to repent of them and tells us that's what you turn from and I'm forming Christ in you. But it's hot and it hurts. But the goal is to be like Christ. To be pure like Christ. That is the the key to this assurance. To find our identity in Christ. God tests our faith to strengthen, purify, and prove it. But on the other hand, Satan is doing something different. You know, in Job, Satan comes before, before God and God says, Have you considered my servant Job? He's a, he's a righteous man. And Satan's like, yeah, but it's because you give him all the stuff. He's, he's got everything made. And God says, well, you can take everything that he has. And so Satan, you know, that's all he needed. Just that leash set out a little bit more and he takes everything that he has. But then he, he says, yeah, but he's still got his health. And so God says, okay, you can take him to the point of, of, of death, but don't kill him. And so he does. He goes immediately after him. Satan wants to take the test of God that is set out for our faith building, for our strengthening, for our purity, and make it a test of temptation. But not only Satan, but even our sinful desires. We want that temptation. We desire and run after it in the old man. And so, though God seeks our righteousness, Satan seeks our rebellion. And so in the midst of persecution, we must be careful. We must be careful that we identify with Christ and not identify with ourselves to defend our rights or defend our, our uh, way of life. We must seek uh, to not live in rebellion, but seek to live in righteousness. Peter assures us that suffering will come because of our association, belief, and obedience to Christ. But he tells us to rejoice. Because, he says, we share in Christ's sufferings. Now, don't get me wrong. We are not suffering to do a part of the work of the atonement that Christ did. There is nothing in us that can earn that. That is completely a work done and completed by our Lord. But when we share in sufferings with Christ, we are sharing in the hatred that the world had for Christ. That hatred now is turned toward us because we say we identify with Him. So we now know a little bit of what it was like for Him when He died for us in our place. But we're not, we're not suffering and saying, okay, I'm working a little bit more on that atonement. No, that's already been done. Christ has already paid for that. When you and I suffer in, in Christ and we share in His sufferings, we are being identified with Christ. And we can rejoice because that's a sign of our salvation. The hate that the world has for Christ is applied to you when you identify with Christ as your Savior and Lord. So you can, you can rejoice. You have, you have cause for rejoicing. Not to rejoice in the suffering, but to rejoice because the suffering has identified you as a Christian. 
So the, the question is, how you respond to suffering and trial is a direct indication of whether you truly belong to God at all. In the 16th century time of the Reformation, the bishop Hugh Latimer, one of the Oxford martyrs, was burned at the stake under the rule of Bloody Mary in England in 1555. When he was condemned to die for his holding to the truth of Scripture, he said, I thank God most heartily that he hath prolonged my life to this and that to this end, that I may in this case glorify God by this kind of death. And he and Nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake together. And it is noted that Ridley encouraged Latimer as the flames began to burn, and he, he raised his voice to him, Be of good cheer, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. And Latimer, later, a bit later, said to Ridley, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. These men were literally being burned in a fiery trial, burned at the stake, and they found cause for rejoicing. I thank God that He has caused me to live to this point where I may die this death in His name. When you woke up this morning, did you think something like that? I didn't. Those men, they understood they were identified with Christ, and they were pleased and rejoicing to to die the death that would bring glory to Christ. But they also rested in the second thing, the assurance of blessing. Peter tells in in 13 and 14, let me read it, "...but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of God and and the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you." He tells his readers to rejoice, and, and we, we see that, that, that we're, they're rejoicing in Christ's sufferings, but they're also seeing their rejoicing with an eye to the future, to a yet greater rejoicing when it says that Christ will be revealed. This is when He comes again. He reminds them of that in 1 Peter 1.7, 1.13, and here in 4.13. And our English translation doesn't do justice to this. Because it's, it seems like it's just saying, yes, just rejoice. And then again it says, and, and your rejoicing will be a little bit better. But this is a exceedingly glad rejoicing. And even yet rejoicing, a, a great rejoicing. As the, the glory of God is revealed, the rejoicing that they once experienced has multiplied in, in exponential form. Because now... It's no longer the temporal suffering that they're experiencing, but the eternal glory that they're going to be entered into. Their their rejoicing has a hope to the future. It's like 2 Corinthians 4 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So now we rejoice in, in sharing in Christ and His sufferings temporally. They will have an end. It will, it will end. It will finish. Then we will rejoice all the more greatly because we will share in the glory of Christ eternally. And so 
Peter has a point to explain that suffering, as we enter into suffering, we need to have an eternal perspective. When the storms of life close in and we put our focus on the here and now, we lose that eternal perspective. And then we despair and lose our rejoicing. When the the waves and the, and the, the darkness roll in, we have to close our eyes and remember that there's an even greater rejoicing coming. Not only is there a blessing of rejoicing, a future rejoicing, but he tells them that the believers have the spirit of glory and of God resting on them. And so this is reminiscent of the day of Pentecost when the the flaming tongues of fire came down and rested on on the believers as the Holy Spirit descended from heaven upon them. And they were filled with the Spirit and they began to prophesy and and to preach and to speak in in tongues that they had never learned. And Peter uh, preaches at Jerusalem and he calls them to, to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. And they too would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now when we are saved today, that doesn't happen. We don't see this flaming tongue of fire come down and sit upon our heads and then we are filled with the Spirit. But it is true that we are filled with the Spirit when we believe and trust in Christ. And we are granted the Holy Spirit who, who not only gives us understanding of Scripture, but then reminds us of that Scripture in the midst of persecution. And not only that, but then points us back to Christ and reminds us of how Christ lived. Have you ever been um, in, in, in something, in some situation where all of a sudden this, this passage of Scripture came up and you haven't thought about that Scripture in a few years maybe? And all of a sudden you can quote it almost, almost word for word and it was like perfect for that situation. That wasn't your mind. That was God, the Holy Spirit, revealing something and reminding you of truth. And He's, he's, he's telling them to, to trust in the fact that you are not alone in your persecution. The Holy Spirit is with you, giving you strength, giving you endurance, reminding you of Christ and pointing you to Him, giving you an abiding hope that is an eternal hope. But how does Peter tell us that we're blessed? This is the interesting part. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, this is a proof that we have the Holy Spirit because this means that the world sees that something's different about us. We speak different. We act different. We have different things that we call fun. We fellowship different. We do things different. And they don't understand that. So they insult you because that's the easiest first thing to do. They don't know why you don't go to the parties with them and get drunk and do all those things. They don't know why you don't, you know, fill in the blank. They don't understand that. But that's a proof that, that you've been saved, that you've been changed, that the Holy Spirit is working in you. That means He's with you. John 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And Chris read for us a few minutes ago, the beginning of of 1 Peter 4 said, let's turn there and look at 1 Peter 4, 3 through 5. You can follow along. It may even be on the same page. He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised that you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. They insult you. They ridicule you. But they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
They don't understand why you don't join them in the mad rush to sin all you can, to have as much fun as you want. They don't get it. They don't understand. And so they malign you. They, they insult you. They ridicule you. You're just a Christian. You're holier than thou. Not all the trials that we face are fiery trials or burnings at the stake. Many today are insults or slanders or even loss of work or status or friends or family. And yet these trials feel just as fiery in our heart even when we are not tied to a stake and burned for our faith. And today, Peter wants us to heed the warning to be prepared for all types of suffering that you may walk in the faith and the truth. Be reminded that you do not bear suffering alone, but the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, your advocate, your comforter, He is with you. And He will guide you into all truth as He has promised. And He will remind you of the eternal and abiding hope you have in Christ. But then there's also the assurance of judgment. Now, when I say judgment, it doesn't sound like that's anything that is assuring. But let's read in 15 through 18. He says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter wants to make sure he clarifies very well that we don't lump all suffering into the same basket. He says there's types of suffering that is deserved because of the things that we could do. He says don't. Don't suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Meddler. As a meddler. He wants to make it clear that suffering that brings glory to God is not suffering for the crimes that we commit. If we do evil and suffer for it, we do not bring glory to God. Now, if we're honest, if, if I'm being honest, I know that when I am insulted or reviled, I am tempted to respond in kind. And there's probably other people that if they were honest would would agree with me and make me feel a little bit more comfortable. (laughs) But that's not the example of Christ. And Peter tells us that even our response to persecution and suffering can hold us to a different kind of suffering because we have done something wrong and not acted like Christ in the midst of that. He, he tells us in Second, First Peter chapter 2, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Peter points us to the fact that that Christ is our example. He's the one that suffered more than any of us ever have. In fact, you could combine all of our suffering and He has still suffered more than that. And He says even when He did that, He did not return the reviling that He received. He did not yell back. He did not spit back in their face. He did not pluck out their beard when they did it to Him. He was holy even in the midst of suffering. He encourages them that it is not their fault that they're suffering if they suffer as a Christian. 
in Peter's day, each, each other, would, they would call each other like beloved or brethren or, or even believers. And it is, beca- it is not a word that we would normally say, or the words that we would normally say was not used very often. In fact, this is only one time of two times in the New Testament that the word Christian is even used. Because the name Christian was actually a derogatory term. It was the slander. You're a Christian. Because it was given by those who followed Caesar. Caesar was to be exalted, worshipped, and held in honor above all else. But these Christians didn't do that. They worshipped Christ. They exalted Him and honored Him above all else. And they would not bow to Caesar. And so the term Christian was a slander. Peter tells them, tells those who suffer for that name to let God be glorified in that name. He, he's concerned that they, they don't face uh, a shame, be ashamed of that name or be disgraced by it, but rejoice in the Lord through it. It meant something for them, and it cost them something to be named a Christian. So a thought that we should have is, does it cost you anything to be a Christian? Is there any association with that when you say, yeah, I'm a Christian? Or is that confusing to the world? They're like, well, you look just like me. You act just like me. Or is it, oh yeah, you're a Christian. Is there something different in your life that sticks out that the world says, yeah, they don't, they don't run after the same things we do? This, this brings us to this assurance. And we haven't even, had, we haven't even talked about the judgment yet. And it says, it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And you ask, but doesn't Romans 8 say, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? And the answer is yes. But this is a twofold teaching that Peter is, is presenting. He says, for the believer, this is a purifying, a, a purging, a faith-building uh, judgment. It is one that is, it is, it is making you new. It's making you something else. But for the unbeliever, there is condemnation and wrath awaiting. So the judgment is, is twofold. Everybody's facing it in one way or another. Either you face it as, as someone who is being made new, or you face it as someone who's being punished. As a believer, experiencing persecution, they would understand that if this purifying and proving was this hard like a crucible, then the wicked will have it so much more worse because they have condemnation and wrath to experience. And so the key to understanding this assurance of judgment is the dividing line of the gospel of Christ. Either you trust in Christ or you don't. And those who trust in Christ will face this this building persecution. This persecution that is making you prepared for heaven. And if you don't trust in Christ, you face the punishment of your sins. So the question is, have you trusted in Christ? Have you put your faith that His work on the cross, His life and His death on the cross and the resurrection from the dead was for you? Because there is absolutely no hope for you apart from the gospel. There is judgment and wrath awaiting. But Romans 8 is a hope. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it's not an easy road that we traverse. But it is the only road that ends with glory with Christ in eternity. 
So then Paul kind of expounds upon this, and he, he quotes from the Septuagint in verse 18. And he says, if, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And so we see this word scarcely, and we need to, we need to understand this, because it almost sounds as if we're saying that we're scarcely saved. Like we're just barely, by the skin of our teeth, able to make it. And the, the statement there is, no, Christ's death was enough. Like, you are fully saved if you were saved. You're not barely saved. It was exactly what was needed to pay the debt for, for our sin. But the difficulty, the scarcely saved part, is the road that the Christian must tread in sanctification and holiness. And it can also be said that scarcely can look at the fact that there's not multiple ways and multiple roads to heaven. And so he's saying there's one way, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one belief. And that's how we are scarcely saved because there's only one way. Spurgeon mentions two, two thoughts of this. He says, there's the strictness of the divine rule that God looks at our heart. And in our heart, in our hidden parts, there must be a true wisdom. And it's capitalized because he's talking about there must be Christ formed in us. There must be the Holy Spirit dwelling in us for us to be saved or else we are not. And then he says, number two, the, the experience of all Christians proves that the work of grace in their hearts is not easily accomplished. For how difficult it is to overcome the flesh. So difficult that it's a whole lifelong process. Throughout life, throughout the process of sanctification, you are putting off that flesh. So we, we see this, this assurance of judgment, that there, there is a... Um, a positive nature to the fires that are coming because they are proving us and making us like Christ or they are showing us that we have even greater condemnation yet to see if we are an unbeliever. But each of these assurances leads to the final one. We have the assurance of the identity in Christ, the assurance of eternal blessing in Christ, the assurance of judgment through the gospel of Christ, and now we see the final assurance, the assurance of faithfulness. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And in this conclusion, he pleads for them to entrust their souls, to give everything that they have. Put all your eggs in this basket. Just as you sat down in that pew and you expected it to hold you up, you put everything you are into it. You trust Christ for everything. And he says, because he is a faithful creator. And in the midst of that, if you're trusting him, you are going to be doing good. Good things, good things that he has prepared for you. So he has two characteristics of the Lord and two commands that he calls us to submit to. And they all go hand in hand. He says that the Lord is the faithful creator. We have to understand that in persecution, and we sing, we sing about it today, when other helpers flee and comfort, comforts fail, like suffering a lot of times feels like you're alone. feels like everybody else has left you. You were all by yourself. And he says, but God is faithful. He is with you. You may not see Him. You may not feel like He's there. He may be feeling like He's quiet or silent, but He's there. You can trust Him because He is faithful. But He's also the Creator. 
which means He is the one that has set everything in motion. He has created it all. He sustains it all. He has um, made it all work in the intricate details. As you woke up this morning, you did nothing to make that sunrise. But Christ did. As you got up this morning and you turned and you put your feet down, He caused your legs to work. Not you. He's the one that causes your heart to continue to beat. He sustains it all. And in the midst of persecution and suffering, when it feels like the darkness is so deep that you may not be able to breathe, you can't feel anything but the weight, you can trust that He is faithful and He is sustaining you. Jay Adams said, If God is, is a faithful Creator, He who has power to create and to sustain His universe, in whose hand is all that transpires, will faithfully fulfill all His promises to His own because He is able to do so, and because He is true and faithful. The suffering saint need not fear. Instead, he is to concentrate on doing good. He must not allow suffering to curtail that. He will glorify God only by doing so. You can rest in the fact that He is sustaining you. You don't have the strength, but He will hold you fast. He is all-knowing. He is aware of the trial that you are in, even when it seems like He's silent. And He knows the solution to the trial that you are in when you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. And because He is the faithful Creator, that He is, he is worthy of, of all things because He is the one controlling it all, we can put our everything into, his li- into Him. We can trust Him with everything. We can walk by faith. 1 Corinthians 10.13 sounds like a very parallel passage to this. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He has not promised that He will remove all suffering from your life. In fact, it's the opposite. He's promised that it's going to come. But He has promised that He will be faithful to give you the way of escape. He will give you the way to endure through that trial. And He is with you. He is with you every step of the way. And so He calls us to entrust our souls to Him, to continue to press forward in obedience to the life He has called you to. And so some thoughts, some final quick thoughts of of how can we do good? How can we press forward? Number one is we may struggle to love our neighbor in suffering and persecution. That, that neighbor may be the one that is persecuting us. It may be an enemy, someone you don't know. It may be a former friend or even a spouse. It may be somebody that, that has been with you your whole life and all of a sudden things are different. But God is faithful and He will give you the strength to do good. Number two is you need to stay in the Word. Studying and memorizing and meditating on, on this truth. Being in passages like the Psalms or, or the Sermon on the Mount or First and Second Peter or Romans. Understanding what God has called us to in the midst of that persecution. To continue to, to, to take the ne- next step and do what He has said that we should do. Number three is to pray daily. Maybe hourly or even moment by moment that you would be faithful to live according to the Christ-like walk God has called you to. Pray and say, God, help me to remember, number four, Christ. That's number four. Remember Christ and His crucifixion and how He responded to false accusations, the beatings and the cross. 
He continually entrusted himself to his faithful father. Christ is our example. And maybe you need to pray, God, help me to be like Christ in the midst of this. And number five, that I can't say enough, is stay in church. Gather with fellow brothers and sisters. This is not a community, uh, uh, I don't know, what, what do you call it, the, the places where you sign up and you pay a fee and they give you all the fun stuff and they serve you and they, they give you fun events. This is not that. This is like a hospital. This is like a triage unit. This is a, a place where you come in broken and beaten up and you, you, you lean on the person next to you because they still have their legs to stand on when you feel like you don't have them. And you, you ask them to pray for you. You ask them to, to share Scripture with you. And you do the same for them. Stay in church. Be here. Gather with the, the body of believers. Hear the message, the, the Word preached. Listen to the music it is sung. And hopefully you can start to sing along with others as they rejoice in the Lord. But not only that, learn how to serve others in the church. Put yourself in the place of service so that you can turn your eyes outward and see, see outward a little bit to be able to help other people in, in their struggles. A very sober passage is uh, 2 Corinthians 1 where he says, We are comforted so that we can be a comfort to others. As I conclude, uh, I want one final illustration. And some of you know me well enough that this will just make you chuckle probably. But I love sunflowers. Like, they're my favorite. I will plant them till the day I die if I can. And every time that I think about sunflowers, I'm just amazed at God's creation. And as you, as you look at a sunflower, we've talked about this before, they're, they're a heliotropic plant, which means at the top of, of the, the stem is the bloom, but the stem has these cells in it that expand or shrink based on where the sun is in the sky. And that, that sunflower will track the sun through the sky throughout the day. It is the coolest thing in the world. I love sunflowers. And what's, what's so crazy is that as that sun is being tracked through the sky, the, the, the sunflower seems to just be radiating in the glory of the sun. But you see that the sunflower is also made to replicate that which it glories in. It looks like a sun on, the, on a big stem. And it replicates what it is made in the image of. And the whole focus of that flower is the sun. But... Is a sunflower still beautiful at night? It is. It's pretty cool at night. But the sun, sunflower knows where to turn to find the sun before it comes up. And it waits. And in the darkest part of the night where there is absolutely no light, that sunflower knows there's the horizon. That's where the sun's coming from. And I'm waiting, just waiting for it to come up. And then as it comes up, it tracks it through the sky. And then the sun goes down and it goes back and it's just waiting. And I think that that's a really cool picture of how we are to be as Christians. We also are created in the image of some, someone much more glorious than ourselves. We image that glory even in the dark, even in trials and even in persecution. But we can rejoice in the dark because we know that when the one whom... We image appears, 
our rejoicing and our glory will be exceedingly more great. In the darkness of persecution, it may be the darkest you have ever had it. Turn your face to the horizon. For the dawn is coming and the sun will appear to call you to glory in Him. Not the sun S-U-N, but the sun S-O-N. Peter encourages us in 1 Peter 5. He says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the assurances that we find in this passage, in this Scripture. God, I even thank You that You promise that things are not going to be easy so that we are not surprised as though something strange were happening to us. But we can trust You with our souls. We can entrust You with our souls. We can put everything we have in Your hand knowing that You will hold us fast. Father, may we find comfort in that, even though we don't have all the answers. Because God, if we had all the answers, we would need no faith. But God, help us to trust in You. Help us to know that You are faithful. Help us to believe when we are burdened by unbelief. Help us to be comforted by brothers and sisters in the church. Help them come alongside us and lift up the feeble and weak arms. Help them to be an encouragement to us that we may in turn learn from that and then be able to comfort those that we see that are struggling in the same way. God, may this all be for Your glory as Your Word says it is. May we not be so burdened that we cannot give You glory. May we be faithful as You are faithful. May we find peace in You, knowing that You have suffered greater than we have ever suffered. Knowing that You gave Your all, that we may have life. And that one day when Your glory is revealed, we will have an even yet greater glory and even great, greater rejoicing when we see the Son of God revealed in the sky. And we join Him in glory in eternity. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.